0: Welcome to the Digital Thoughts Podcast. My name is Zan Sayed, and I am a pharmacist turned product manager. I have almost 10 years of clinical experience in oncology, ranging from inpatient all the way to outpatient. My goal with this podcast is to bring people from all sides of the conversation together so that we can learn from each other and build a better healthcare system. In this podcast, we discuss everything digital health from the people to the products. If you do enjoy what you listen to, please consider giving this podcast a five star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really does help a lot. Thank you very much, and let's get into the episode. Today, we have an awesome guest. Michael Awood is the CTO of Disability and Assistive Technology at University of Cape Town MedTech. In this episode, we talk about how designing for disabilities can help everyone, how they are speeding up innovation for the community, what is their design process, and AI in healthcare. It's a jam-packed episode. I hope you guys enjoyed as much as I did. But first, a word from our sponsors. Supercharge your outreach by finding the right person with the help of Alpha AlphaSophia Alpha Sophia helps you accelerate your medtech product adoption by helping you find and engage the right physicians with a leading commercial intelligence platform for medtech startups and SMBs for a fraction of the cost of traditional email lists. Set up a call today by going to www.alphasophia.com backslash zane. Now on to the episode. Hey, Michael, how are you doing? All the way from South Africa.
1: Hello, thanks, Zane. Yeah, I'm all the way from sunny South Africa, looking good this side. I don't know how it is on your side. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it, it's, it's fine. It's good. It's, uh, it's a nice nice, early, nice morning for us here.
1: Good, good. This is the best weather we've received, like, in the last what two, three weeks. Um it's about to get stormy and cold again. Not not cold by your standard, but <laughs> cold by a South African standard. <laughs> I was
0: like, yeah man. But yeah, uh I'm actually really excited for this discussion. I think we're gonna be touching on some things that um aren't not touched on a lot. But before we get started, do you mind giving us a little background about yourself?
1: Yeah, sure. So I'm Michael, I'm actually an occupational therapist. I did my undergrad in OT. Uh worked out in rural clinics up in um Johannesburg in South Africa. And then moved into a public facility focusing on rehab. So I worked in spinal cord rehab, um, stroke rehab. I worked there for about four five or so years. And then I did my MBA at the same time. But my thesis looking at artificial intelligence and healthcare, I mean, that's a separate topic on its own. Um, I moved to one of the largest private medical insurance companies in South Africa. Worked for them for the last, or so about five or six years. And now I'm in academics, I've moved over to UCT, the University of Cape Town, specifically their MedTech group, which is a division or lab part of their biomedical engineering research center group. So Now looking at devices, creating devices uh, to serve the the population of people that are underserved. So how do we create and design for that, for that area?
0: Yeah, no, that's amazing. And that's one of the reasons uh, why I was really excited about this conversation is because the work that you do is... Uh, something that is a very necessary and it's, uh, it's a, it's surrounding, like you said, underserved people that are usually forgotten. Right. I mean, healthcare in healthcare, we pride ourselves in taking care of the underserved yeah. in taking care of people with, you know, disabilities or anything. But in reality, uh, our systems are not built to take care of any of that. Our systems are built Correct. to take care of able-bodied people that can afford it. Mm-hmm.
1: That absolutely. And we we often find that even though there's, there's technologies even made that could be made easier uh, from the word go I think you and I chatted about this very really briefly, that in that design process, that start, there's a clear route to go through to make things easier for everybody. Um, but due to various other needs, uh, business cases, et cetera, we often shift away. And we come and address it. We readdress it and redesign everything. Um, whereas it should be sort of forefront of for everything.
0: Yeah, no i I was doing some I, I did some research for an article I wrote, and um, it was it was around designing for disabilities, and mm-hmm. uh, it was a Harvard um, it was a Harvard wrote an oh, it was like an article in their like, Harvard Review or something, and they they had so- talked about kind of the design process, and uh, they asked the design per- the designers saying, hey, why why isn't design for disability more on the forefront? Why isn't it something that's you know started from the ground up? Because you know this is something we can talk Ooh. about. Like when you're designing for um, different conditions, you have to think about that from the get go. You can't just add on something after the fact because yeah. it's that's what it's going to be. It's just going to be an add on, and it's going to look like that. And and what she the answer she said really um, it was really surprising and also kind of sad at the same time. She said that. Uh in design, uh designing for disabilities is just a checkbox. Uh it's just a, it's just part of the process that you need to get through. There's no there's no real freedom in it. You you can't make it look pretty, whatever. You're like, hey, we just need to add a handrail here, we just need to add a ramp here, let's just make sure it is okay, fine, let's just get it done with and move on with our life. Yeah, yeah. Uh
1: and, and I think a lot of that is underpinned sometimes by you know the stats. So everyone says, well, you know, we're designing something for someone. Who who are the people around that we're designing for? And I, it, it seems small in terms of like percentage-wise, but I think 16% of the world population is disabled or have, has a disability. But like 1.3 billion people, that's a lot of people that haven't been accounted for, that haven't been given the the potential to access something. So you're right. That's become this checkbox exercise. Um, does it have, I, I think, recently, 2022, last year, or even before that, there was quite a big forum put forward to say, these are the most basic features that must be on all web pages on, on, on Web3 to allow for people with different um, different abilities to participate, to access content. So at that point, that checkbox becomes, a OK, this is where we actually need to start. Um, we now need to integrate a lot of thought processes into how someone moves through that, uh, that system. So only recently has it become this big, um, I want to call it a front-facing checkbox, but it's a lot of steps that actually needs to go in before the product can even take flight. So a standardized process has really come forward to make sure that people can access content on various other platforms these days.
0: I mean, yeah, I mean, that's great to hear. But I mean, and then, and, and the other thing with, with designing, um, designing for ease of use in mind for everyone is that it trickles down and it's helpful. I mean, it's, What's the word I'm looking for? It's great for everyone, right? Like, you know, like just yeah. be- when you're designing for, um, I mean, disability is the word I'll use it and I'm not using, trying to use it as a <laughs> derogatory term, but when you're designing for people with like, let's say, um, hard of hearing or they have, you know, mm-hmm. they have hard, hard, you know, they can't see as well. Guess mm-hmm. what? When you're designing for those and you're thinking about that, well, hey, somebody like me who can see fine or can hear fine, those products yeah. end up get working really well yeah. and are designed way better than just like a standard product.
1: Correct. If if you if you think of um, I was thinking about it this morning actually, but before the advent of like road signs or traffic signals, people were just driving through or moving through places without any direction. In let's intro like augmented reality version one, like a hardened <laughs> version of it. But it allowed us to navigate the, the the street, it allowed us to navigate various areas by looking at the various signs popped up in front of us. And that allowed anybody that's not just a driver, but even someone just walking around could see, okay, this is street X. This is the road that I'm going to take to go left. Um, so that was like an inclusivity part, sort of undertoned, because everyone could now see and now to navigate just going, going, going down the road. Um, and you're right, There, there's an essence of designing for one and increasing accessibility makes it easier for everybody. Um, I'm sure many people with their smartphones, closed captioning is a big thing. Uh, The fact that I can just lift up my phone now, and even I think Apple's done it, you can lift up your phone to someone who's talking and it will show them, it will say, there's Zane, he's got the Bulls hat on, he's got this great top on, he's talking to you, he's facing you, and this is what he's saying. That's just changed, that's a game changer because I now can interact directly with my environment based on something that gives more information so the checkbox again like i said earlier has moved <laughs> it's it's become a, a standard practice
0: yeah and i'm i'm ha- i'm glad that that's happening and then the other thing is um when when you when you have an ailment whether it be you know a heart either you're you know hard of hearing or you know you have a certain disease you don't want that to be outwardly projected right so yeah the other thing about you know inclusive designing for inclusivity is um uh, People actually using that product and mm-hmm. being able to like kind of not hide, I'm not I'm not just saying hide, but like can just kind of blend in to the rest of their surroundings, right? And people are not like, oh man, you know, this person is hard of hearing or this person's got this or this person's got cancer. And, you know, they're they can't a lot of people can't get past that. And then, you know, it's it's mm-hmm. uncomfortable for the other person where mm-hmm. they're just trying to live their life and trying to move, you know, move around. Yeah. And that's the other thing yeah. that, you know, this hopefully like, you know, the work that you guys are doing and others is mm-hmm. allowing people to kind of just live their life without being constantly reminded about what they can't do.
1: Yeah, it's that discreteness. Um, Yes, I need assistance to do something. (laughs) But the, the device that I use or something that helps me do that isn't as visible to the eye. Because currently, and I'm sure you'd agree, disability is quite a visual thing. You can see there's a difference. Um, and and people automatically, like you said, those perceptions, those thoughts already go through, and like, I wonder, um, if this person needs assistance. What can we do here? And maybe that person's actually quite fine. They don't need any of that input. Um, but there is a there is a focus to make um assistive technologies, assistive devices, very much more discreet that that fits in with with everyday to To not make it that apparent, you're right. People do want to still keep their lives private and not that open.
0: Yeah, and then I mean, um, we kind of talk about what you do, and uh, we've been alluding to it, but like, do you mind giving us a little background of what you're what you're actually doing uh, at your current job?
1: Yeah, so at Ustematic, we we look at you know we develop innovative solutions for for people um, across across the board, um, but mainly to address medical challenges um, that we find out in Africa. So we're a group of multidisciplinary um, people. We have engineers, we have clinicians that's joined in. Um, We even have partners and even people that experience these, the the various um, disabilities that we're looking at assisting with. And the aim is to improve access. But at the same time, reduce costs. We know health care is quite an expensive space. So what we've been looking at is designing a couple of technologies with a couple of people to improve access. Uh, something i we been working on right now, which is quite a fun project, is assisting um, someone that would like to surf, but has had uh, multiple amputations. So that's upper limb and lower limb. But they'd like to surf. And how do we facilitate that process of getting this person on the surfboard, getting them safe? How how do we, what are the various steps involved? So, yes, we took a couple of trips down to the beach <laughs> and probably going into the pool at some point to really test out some of the innovations that we've come up with. But, um, yeah, it, it's, it's all to promote access. Someone wants to, like, choose to do what they want to do. So that's one of the projects we're working on. We've started a new project as well with um, a group of people with visual impairment. Um, so really bringing the, if I can say, the the walking cane into the new age. What else can this thing do? Um, and not keep it as just the, uh, the the person that I interviewed that we when we spoke about it. They said um, they called it the old ox wagon. How do we upgrade <laughs> the Ox wagon? <Volkswagen? laughs> um, and they wanted a new model car. So we're a, a lot of our work is also focused on doing that and translational research, because many of the times these things get researched, well published, well documented in that sense, but never produced. So we're trying to move into that space of translating it out, taking academic research and then practically applying it. Um, and yeah, that's that's a bit of what we're doing currently—that's
0: awesome. I do want to touch on that last point you brought up. So, why, <laughs> what what is that barrier between academic research and you know full blown production?
1: It, it it's quite difficult to tell. Um, I, most of the times, these are uh, funded projects that you know one would get a grant for research, what the problem <laughs> is, design a solution around it, and present that. And most of the time you find that this device stops there. Um, it still maybe needs a certain certification. It still needs various ethics approvals. And that process doesn't always fall into that design, that continuous design process. So yes, we've got this. Um, Michael needed this type of device. We looked at, we re-engineered it. Did we meet match the target? Yes, we did. And that's where we ended so the the view is then how, where do we get the implementation part? And again, that's usually another grant access or some further funding. Funding is normally the the main the main burden here because you actually do need to get funding to get the researchers out to certain areas, to evaluate the technology, to certify certain technologies. Ethically, you can only test things on people if you've got the right approval. And that, that, takes, that takes some funding and time as well. So the lab has really established itself in a space of how can we approach some of those barriers? <clears throat> um, how do we uh, approve or get certified training to look at technologies that can say, these match those standards already, just to decrease that lead time to get something to someone. Um, and that's what we're part of our process as well. We're, we're really unpacking that standardization process within the group as well.
0: And that's amazing and you're right there's just so much research done in accessibility and you know papers are written and you know large scale yeah. environmental tests are even done and then like yeah. you're right it just kind of stays there like oh these are great ideas this is how we should be doing and then yeah, it just never gets implemented or doesn't get yeah. put into the design process um, so no that's why I mean that's why I think we need institutions like what you guys are doing and groups like you you guys are Kind of that bridge between okay we have great ideas now let's bring them into the real world um correct. and i love the i love the um, i love the idea that you guys are working with a person that's trying to surf i think that's another thing that gets lost in all of this it's not just going with your day to day life it's also enjoying mm. your life you know it's just like correct. just because you can't do something in the way you're supposed to do it doesn't mean you shouldn't be still able to enjoy that specific activity
1: correct um i think from a occupational therapy background there's so many spheres of life and every, there's the work part of it there's the standard daily activities but then there's always this this pleasure side How how do i enjoy my life how do i spend some time off um and how do i participate in those activities when you look at participation it's across the spectrum so a leisure activity can be me getting on to some public transport if I don't have my own, getting down to the beach, uh, getting my surfboard with me and off I go. But for someone with a disability, physical impairment or um, mental, mental health uh, difficulties, it's really difficult to go along that process. So what do we do? How do we assist in that? Um, and we, we were approached by this group um, of people to say, this guy really wants to surf how do we do this? And we thought, well, it sounds like a good problem to have. <laughs> how do we engineer a solution here? Um, and I think thats it, it's important to understand that ecology. Um, there's a great framework in occupational therapy called the ecology of human performance. And it basically says that everyone has a set level of skills and the skills allow them to perform the occupations, the things that they enjoy doing. Um, the things that bring them meaning. But so often we look at the physical problem or the fact that Michael's got a spinal cord injury or the fact that he only has uh, one upper limb. That's the limiting factor. When in actual fact, you turn it around and say, well, it's the context they're performing in that's the limiting factor. It's because the beach is not designed for a wheelchair. That's the limiting factor, not the fact that he can't can't get to the beach so contextually i think that's one area that you also then consider as you create these solutions how do we allow for improved performance occupational performance for the person
0: yeah 100 percent agree i think it's kind of going back to when you're in the design process can you yeah. design for inclusivity um and it's not even like you said there's a lot of research out there there's a lot of things that you can put in just mm-hmm. bare minimum stuff that can make great, uh, that can help people so amazingly, and it doesn't have to, and it doesn't like change the fundamental way you use your product or design your mm-hmm. product. You can still make it blend in, make it look mm-hmm. good. Um, and I think yeah. that that's something that I'm I'm glad that you know it, you're saying that it's starting to kind of catch on. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. You you actually find a good example of that in prosthetics. So, when prosthetics started, it was all about the look, you know, uh, we always have the debate of form versus function, and form was very important, so it needed to look the part, it needed to look like me, um, function-wise, it was terrible, it, it couldn't do anything. Um, in South Africa, we we got, um, at the start of the prosthetics time, we had the space arm that was skin-toned, and you could choose the, the tone of your preference. But you also had then an active one, which was this claw. And you controlled the claw through the opposite shoulder. So you moved the opposite shoulder, and the claw on the other hand would start moving. Um, but that was good, good function, but terrible form. <laughs> so how did, you come, how did we get to this middle, middle point? And a lot of the producers of prosthetics are actually going the, the route of anthropometric features. So it looks like a normal hand. It looks like a normal leg, ankle, foot. However, the, the parts of the cosmetic piece has, has been embellished quite a bit. So you get these flashy new robotic designs. They have lights in them. They don't have any skin tone on them because that's irrelevant. It's more the function I get out of it. And it actually looks cool. Um, And there are so many people I've seen with this thing that lights up at night. Um, They're going to a party and that's the actual piece, the show piece that they have. So form and function has struck a bit of a balance in in these areas where, you know, there's a bit more of a usability piece that I like wearing this thing. It looks cool.
0: Um, That's good. And I think that's overlooked quite a bit. I think that... um... I think people really over, really underestimate uh, if something looks cool or something is desirable to wear, right? Even if it's, yeah, even if it might cause some attention, as long as it's interesting attention, right? Like, hey, this, Mm -hmm. this, you know, the same thing with prosthetics. Yeah, I I agree. Like, you've seen this kind of shift in prosthetics where they're like, not necessarily, they're not even hiding it now. They're like, hey, let's just make it look good and make it so that people are, I I don't want to use the word proud, but they're, they're happy to, be seen in it, walk around in it, or mm. whatever, use it on a day-to-day basis, and they don't feel. Um, I don't want to. I mean, I don't even want to use the word ashamed, but you know, like it's just something. Like you said, it's just something cool. It's a. It's a great conversational starter for some people, and mm. it just kind yeah. of breaks the ice really quickly, and you can kind of move on.
1: Mm. And you, you'll actually find a lot of
0: um, people that use uh,
1: these devices. They would say that this is a part of me. This is me, and therefore. It doesn't matter what it looks like this is this is who I am. Um, I've worked with many wheelchair users who would refer to the wheelchairs as their legs. They'd say, these are my legs. this is how I get around. so to you're right, there is an essence of wearing something proud. um there is an essence of showing i mean <laughs> this is this is what what my makeup is like um and i i'm I'm comfortable in it. And remember we, we're in a time where we a very open time, a very accepting time for people to really show this is this is why man, I've I've no shame behind it. And we want that. That's also again that accessibility part. That's again um bringing out the, the, the person that's always been there but is hidden behind stigma, the various in social injustice walls. We we've we've passed that and you're right, people are showing their their little lights that flash, their, their legs, people are more proud of, of, of these features.
0: Yeah. And I'm, I'm, and this should be great. You know, that, that's what makes you, you And you know, we as human beings are unique and if we were all the same, it'd be kind of boring, honestly. Um, and yeah. And then the other thing that you guys do that I love, um, so there's designing for us, you know, (laughs) a group of people, but, you know, a lot of times they don't have input in that design uh, yeah. And you've mentioned it a couple of times, kind of as you've been telling your stories, but you guys before you design something, you actually talk to talk to them, you kind of interview yeah. them, you kind of see what they're doing in day to day life and you if if you're designing a general product for a specific mm-hmm. uh, you know ailment you bring you mm-hmm. you interview a, a bunch of people with that ailment mm-hmm. correct it, It's <laughs> so important to
1: understand the lived experience because it's only through that that you identify okay, these are the actual gaps. So it's great that this device exists, but how does that impact my life? So we'd show them. We'd say, this is what we're thinking of. What were you thinking of? Um, we actually, when I spoke to the visually impaired um, person, he, he was sharing with me his story of how he's always seen this new version of what he would like to have. Um, and he said to me, you know, I'll draw it for you. I'll happily draw it. I can see it. I know what it- must do and that's invaluable um experience like I can't even I can't even say when he was trying to describe all these features <laughs> that he had he even knew that it had to be in this triangle shape they they have such good insight because of the challenges that they were experiencing so to interview them to unpack that um, The guy actually said to me, it feels good to get this out on the table. It feels good to participate in the space, to know that this is my experience and I can make a change for somebody else, let alone themselves, That said, for somebody else. Um, So, yeah, we, we definitely partner up with the person directly to see how it works within their world. And then there's a view to say, well, once we've tried and tested it, can it work for the next person? And again, we'd probably do the same chat to them what must be changed what's what do you need up until we get an iteration of it that's actually okay this is generally viable this is something i can work and let's let's take it forward from there
0: yeah no i love that why do you think that is i mean this is not generally just um you know uh, why do you think that people when we're designing for certain groups groups of people right whether it be clinicians uh people with visual impairment you know anything really elderly people, why is it that we start designing without their input mm it, it's a good question because it's it's something I
1: can't even think about not doing yeah but i i i i, I think it could be you know not not i mean recently we, we've been in a space of the it's the go to market whoever hits the market first with this new device um we're happy to release this thing, and then should it not work, it will be reviewed then only. But so th- there's so little care taken in that process of really defining what this, this, this thing is that you want to make. Um, I guess there's a lot of regulatory loopholes to jump through. I think there's actually more if you don't do them. But let's conceptualize this device. It looks good on paper. It looks great in a, in a normal testing environment. Uh, let's, let's, let's go for it. Um, and that, it's that first mover's advantage that a lot of businesses try to take. But even with that, you know, you've, you've probably stepped put yourself like 10 or 100 steps back because at some point you're going to have a failure in the system um, and you've put someone at risk. So I, I, I think it's just, let's just find a way to make this work. This is the kind of problem that someone has and let's make something.
0: Yeah, no, I think you're, <clears throat> yeah, I think that, I think you're right. I think it's just people are trying to get to market first and they're just excited. Or, I mean, there's also a level of ego and arrogance to it too, right? Like, Hey, I know mm-hmm. how to solve this problem or, you know, whatever. And, and not in, I'm not saying that in a bad way. Some people, you know, when passion, sometimes when you, when you're really passionate about something that yeah. kind of sometimes yeah. puts blinders on you and you kind of forget, uh, why you started in the first place.
1: Sure. Sure. And that, that clouds the entire process that you would have had. Um, and you're right, there might be many passionate people out there that want to get this going. Um, but the... And it, and it happens quite often. You When you look at a product, you say, why was this designed? And if you can't answer that question, what the person it was designed for, then you know you haven't designed
0: appropriately. Yeah, 100%. So kind of go, going off that... What is your guys' design process like from start what from start to finish uh, when you how do you guys decide to make a product when do you guys bring cool. in people or do they or does it start with somebody approaching you guys like, hey, I need help with this
1: it, it's it's twofolded so we have a, we have had increasing increasingly a lot of people coming through now saying, um we've seen some of the things you've done before um we've actually a couple of years back, we created a robotic exoskeleton to help people who' suffered a stroke to to write. And it was just a tested system, and a lot of therapists and clinicians came to us and said, "Hey, we've got this problem with with patients. Can you help us do this?" And that turned into people with um, impairments or difficulties coming to us saying, "Hey, I've got this. Can you help me do this?" Um, so we have a lot of those, but we also do have a lot of internal Sort of models where we're saying we've seen this. This has existed. It's very static. It hasn't changed in the last <clears throat> couple of years. Can we do something? Can we design something that can impact that and then approach uh, the various populations that it might be that might find it quite useful? So we we do have two streams essentially. Um, it, it just depends on which which process comes in first, but. Irrespective, regardless of that, we we would go back to whoever the group would be that it's aimed at and say, please review, what do you think? We'd actually have clinicians even review the device if necessary. Um, A lot of what we did when we did the robotic exoskeleton, for example, was the view was to create a tool for therapists to work with their patients. Uh, the, The therapist to patient ratio isn't that great in physical rehab. So how could you provide something to the therapist? So even with that, we reviewed the, the person's feedback if it was actually using it, but we also reviewed the therapist's feedback if it actually made a change for them. So like, we said, like I said, we're multidisciplinary. We look at everyone's viewpoints before we go to the next step. Um, so what's the pain point? How do you address the pain point? Um, do we, who do we review it with and then iterate? And then sort of that circle just keeps going.
0: Yeah, it's kind of answered my next question of, you know, what are the steps that you guys take? And um, I mean, that's amazing. Uh, I would like to learn a little bit more about this exoskeleton. So what, uh, so what does it do? So is it, it's used during the rehab process? So it's
1: called the Rescribe. Um, and it's an exoskeleton that's used post-stroke. Uh, The population initially was um, flaccid paralysis of the upper limb, uh, where they actually lose uh, almost all their function in the hand. And this device was paired up with a LCD screen. And the LCD screen had letters, shapes, numbers pop up. And the exoskeleton would then guide the hand to go through those shapes, those numbers. And it would do it at a process that is slow enough. For, um, for retraining and relearning. And they would do this over a period of time. So at, at the initial trial, I think there were a handful of uh, patients that we had access to where they would go through, they would do this therapy, I think it was twice or so in the week. Um, and you could actually see the documented outcomes of what was quite a shaky square at the start, turned out to be a much faster than but more straight line square. I mean, I can't even draw a straight line square. But <laughs> you, you can see that that process across the continuum. Uh, one of the criticisms that did come up was you know, stroke in itself um, doesn't allow, for, especially in that type of patient with the blastopariasis, doesn't really allow for quick recovery, doesn't really allow for a lot of um, function to return to the limb. So it was a bit of a tricky space to work in. But we we saw in a very tiny cohort of people that there was actually quite a lot of uh, documented evidence where they could perform very specific tasks coming back. Whether they could um, write or do anything further than that, that deserves some further exploration. But at that time, just looking at drawing a circle, a square, um, how that changed the triangle, how that changed over time, uh there's actually a nice little document about that. i can share that with you
0: uh, yeah, where you could see
1: it. the change over a couple of weeks
0: yeah i'd love yeah. to i'd love to do that that's that's amazing um what has been kind of your like what's been one of those stories where you, that kind of sticks with you while while you've been working here there's
1: so many to choose from
0: <laughs> <laughs> we, could, we could go I, through them all
1: <laughs> i i think the <laughs> the, the one that. That still that still sits on us uh, when we think about it is, if we come back to the guy that wants to surf, um, the the task demands and the the amount that the person could meet the task demands, there was quite a disparity, um, and a lot of questions went through our mind as Is the person safe? how how, how is can can they get out of the water? Can they get onto the surfboard? There were a lot of pieces to this puzzle. And we, we're still in the process, so not to get anyone's hopes up that we've like solved this thing, but <laughs> um, we're, we're still in the process of working with them. But it, it really st- st- struck us because we actually went to one of the surf competitions that they had to do qualifiers for. There's a bigger competition coming up. Um, and we chatted to a few of them. And you could see how... they're taken aback that here's this group of people coming out to ask us our experience of surfing how do we surf um and you know some some were you know surfing is nothing this is this is easy let me show you (laughs) you know they jump on their board and off they go and it's amazing what 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 they're able to do um but you also had those that were quite ashamed I, i remember speaking to someone they asked their coach please do you mind if we just chat to them alone um it's it's quite a quite a process for us, and there was a lot of lot of feeling into it, and we realised the gravitas of the situation that there were so many people that want to participate but couldn't, dependent on their their disability, and they get classified differently, dependent on the residual limb or function that they're able to, and some want to be in different categories but can't because of. How they classified depending on their um, disability. So, what what for us seemed like a single project with one person turned into a massive cohort of people who all wanted to have something to serve. But I I remember showing the um, the the organizer of, of of the one event, um, and she's she's our main sort of investigator that we're working with. I Remember showing her this little. Um, 3D printed mold that we had created for for the person and she just looked at this thing says, how did you do that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, what seemed like a very simple 3D printing process um, and she was trying to understand the, the movement of the person through water. We explained we could do a bit of an activity analysis as in, you know, it will do this when it hits the water, it will do this if they need to stand on the board and we could show her that. And there was just this, this is amazing. This, this person has a big opportunity to, to swim. Um, because you have to solve for so many pieces that even that existed before the actual getting onto the board. So we had to take a step back and we <laughs> thought, oh, we're detracting, he's not going to be happy. He wants to surf. We're trying to get him to, you know, like paddle or, or, or swim through the breakwater. But in actual fact, that's quite a vital aspect of the activity of surfing. Getting into the water, am I safe? Can I rotate myself if I fall off the board? How do I get to my board? And those are all the parts that we thought of in discussion with him and um, with the coach. and you could see already there was this okay, now this is well thought out. And first, I was like, okay, good, you know <laughs> we've reached the goal. This is just the first step, but it's 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 taking on that big leap. Um, I mean thinking of someone um, that that needs to get into this massive ocean, torrential <laughs> waves rushing them around. But here we could provide a solution that provided a little spark of hope, um, something that can get them through the water. And well, the next step is to actually get it onto them and see how it fits, how, it make, how they could move around with it and get them really then into the pool for us to test out, There's a lot of ethics involved. but we've kicked off that little spark and you could see it in the eyes. Like, okay, well, we, you know, we've done something good here. Um, and it's just this slow, slow process. One would think that these things are quite quick and easy, but you, you realize there's quite a lot of pieces that you actually do need to really analyze, um, really understand to, to facilitate someone to to perform or to participate. In, in a space I really love to. So the surfing one for me still still stands out. It's still ongoing. Um, I'm really excited. Not that I want to jump in the pool with everyone else <laughs> or water, but uh, some people might say I'm not from Cape Town. Who, who wouldn't want to jump into the sea? <laughs> but but we, we still actually have a lot of time to sit with them and, and try it out. And let's, let's get going to the next step.
0: That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, um, <clears throat> you're right. I mean, when somebody says, hey, I want to learn how to surf, you know, people are like, okay, how do we get them on the board? How do they, but, you know, you gotta, like you said, you got to take a step back. How do you get into the water? How do you get to the mm-hmm. wave? You know, how, when mm-hmm. a wave is breaking, you kind of have to like dive underneath it or however you do it. Um, what yeah. happens when you fall off the board? How do yeah. you get back on the board? I mean, those are all yeah. fundamental things that you need to do even before you even get up on the board, right?
1: Sure, sure. And and, and it was about breaking that and unpacking that because at the time, only getting onto the board and standing up, so to speak, was the objective, because that shifted them into a new category. But you had to take the step back to say, okay, well, how do we make sure you can get there safely and a bit more independently? I think we overlook that independent part, because usually I think that the rules do allow that they get assisted out into the sea, they get assisted onto when the wave crests, and then they surf by themselves. But that piece in the middle of being able to actually try to get myself out into the sea, try to catch the wave by myself, um, something he, he shared that, again, it's quite an important part. But actually, he probably has enough energy for about um, three or so tries, um, three or so heats. And by the the first one he he might have been a bit anxious because yeah, fear is a big mm-hmm. a big a big problem um in the sport the second one the second go through is okay i kind of have worked out now i know what to do but the last one is this like okay it's a it's a duel or nothing now what i need to get it right i figured it out and it's a massive um effort just to get them in to that zone and to do do what they wanted to do. Um, and I remember he he was worried about his heat and he actually passed. He actually did quite well. He got a good score nice. um and saved it for the last for the last one. But there there's there's just that that aspect of someone wants to actually make it turn into four. Four um four runs that I can do. That makes it that much easier for me. Four or five runs that I can do. Um, everyone else has like a maximum of five or six and I might only have two because I can't paddle enough. I can't write myself up quickly enough in the time frame. So a lot of aspects to think about. And again, it comes back to that design space. What is it that you're designing for? Um, it's not that you're just designing to get up onto the board and go out into the wave, but you're designing to actually participate in the full activity of what's serving
0: you. Yeah, no, I love that. I think the, what you mentioned about the independence versus assisted, I think a lot of times we forget that independence is something for people that have independence. We take it for granted. We don't think about the little small things until it's taken away from us, right? And I love that you guys are kind of taking that into account. Like, hey, you know, let's build something to the point where he can try to get to it and do it on his own, right? Because that in itself is, I think everyone, no one wants to be helped uh, along Mm -hmm. the way, right? Everyone wants that independence, and being able mm. to it's not even like about achievement or something it's just like hey yeah. i just want to get up and go and do this i don't need to bring like four people with me i can i can just go on my own and just get it done and enjoy my life sure.
1: exactly um we were we we're talking about that that people would like to just come to the beach get get ready get done get into the water and decide okay i'm done thank you i've had a great day but if you look at that that accessibility part, um, not everyone has access to transport. The transport doesn't go that far. It costs money. Um, they can't actually get or don and doff the wetsuits or the various devices that they use. So there's so many barriers in that place. How do we start like decoupling them and unpacking them as we go forward?
0: Yeah, I love it. Um, I do want to touch on. You know, you said you had a master's in AI. Um I would like to you know the remaining time we do have um I will I will we'll let's ask some questions so you know do, where do you see um like AI in healthcare like AI in kind of the space you're working um like what are you excited about
1: Sure um so I, I have an MBA <laughs> not of masters in AI Oh yeah. I I did my I did my um my my thesis was about the role and perceptions of and um, emotional intelligence on artificial intelligence within the health profession space in South Africa. So, yes, I, I, I love AI. Uh, tech is my sort of back, back pocket magic trick every now and then. Um, you know, the, the guy in the family that they phone to set up the network. That's, yeah.
0: that's me. <laughs> I'm saying <same laughs> but, uh,
1: <laughs> but AI and healthcare, there's, there's quite a good synergy coming forward. In fact. fact, when I wrote my, my, my thesis, one of the outcomes was that people found that there's an easy synergy between man and machine and that the one is not going to replace the other. So I, my, what sparked my thesis was, and I can see that's probably where you, you want to ask next, but what sparked my, um, my thesis was I found a paper that looked at all the professions, um, listed internationally, and the lowest for risk to be taken over by AI was occupational therapy. <laughs> and I thought, that, that's kind of interesting. Why is that? Um, and when you read further, it actually goes on to the fact that the the higher the need for emotional intelligence, the lower the replicability of AI in that space. So that's where I kind of then looked at, well, what are people seeing? And we actually did a couple of emotional intelligence <laughs> assessments as well and coupled them. And you find that that in the healthcare professional space, obviously, there is a higher level, above average, higher level of um, emotional intelligence. But you also saw that they were quite hopeful and optimistic that there is a space for the two to integrate. And I think, I can't remember, I re- one of your podcasts, someone had spoken about, could have been pressed and about Intuit surgical um mm-hmm. with their with the the robotic systems that they have for surgery but a lot of facilities public and private were using those already um, and starting to see how that improves surgery rates as well as outcomes so there's been good advancement using ai and we've just got MedPom come out from google looking at how do we Take all this information and just condense it easier for 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 healthcare professionals. That's a big, big step because physicians suffer from burnout because there's so much data, there's so much record keeping that they have to do. And here we have a system that can actually just say, There's Michael, this is his problems. Predictively, we can say this might happen. How do you treat that? How do you provide that service? That's up to the doctor, not the AI. And I think that's an important loop that we have that. AI or any of the various disciplines under it is seen as more of a a space to assist rather than take over.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think that AI is, I mean, there's a lot of sensationalization that happens with new technology, right? People get scared, they don't know how to use it or what's going on. And I mean, honestly, a lot of it's based off of movies (laughs) and things like that, right? But I do think that you're right, um, that Clinicians, like the people, uh, like oh, what we do, it's not, it can't be taken over, I think, because people don't realize what we do, like all the different mm-hmm. things that we need. And then also in the end, like you said, the emotional intelligent piece of it, in the end, healthcare is a human to human experience. Um, you know, it's and it's going to stay that way. I always ask people like, oh, well, we can replace this part and this part. I'm like, that's great, but like, how would you feel if you or your mother, let's say you're you're sitting there, your mother thinks she's got cancer, she gets a scan, mm-hmm. And you guys are waiting for this scan to come through okay got we got ai we're doing all these things it's figured out you got cancer then you get a text message saying hey uh you have cancer yeah how would you feel knowing that you got cancer via text message or an automated phone call yeah. i would i would assume most of us would not like it that way right absolutely because yeah. what happens is okay a you have cancer now you don't know what kind of cancer? I mean, you don't know the gravity of it, right? Because the obviously you don't know everything about the cancer, right? You don't know the <laughs> exactly. gravity of it, what you need to do next. That's another big piece that I think a lot of people forget mm-hmm. is that what is the next steps? Uh, what mm-hmm. is going to happen? And then also mm-hmm. just the support system. I think uh, what people don't realize is uh, as busy as we are, we are still part of that support network for the patient. And yeah. that support network is vital to somebody's, I don't know, it's... I mean, it's it it can be the difference if you don't have a good support network, it can be the difference between you having a good outcome and a bad outcome, and those mm-hmm. are things that AI maybe maybe it can eventually in like in a couple of decades, whatever, who knows? Mm-hmm. But I don't see it happening in our in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. And I love the mm-hmm. fact that you said that synergy. We we can work towards synergy, and I think if we work towards synergy of AI and healthcare, we will mm-hmm. move much faster ra- than if we are trying to replace things.
1: Yeah yeah i think the the replace piece has to be off the cards um and it's it's rather how do we optimize the healthcare delivery system so i think um not too long ago there was a discussion uh you know of that we're talking about electronic health records and how they actually provide good access to healthcare um with the right information being put into this this distributor of, of of knowledge but how does the AI sort of assist us in that part? How does it translate all of that across? How does it make it easier for the professionals to work? I think that's that's where we need to unlock um, a lot of those costs. There's a cost benefit, of, of course. How do we unlock all of that um, within that system versus, like you said, getting a text message? It's not going to work. You want to talk to someone up front. You have real hard questions, and only a person can provide that to you. Yeah. Even if, 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 I mean, now we're getting into digital twins and synthesized voices. Um, I mean, I don't think that's that's close enough to actually give the human touch of how can I help you? It, it sounds like a very cliched line, but to have that coming out of a human's mouth actually makes a, a massive difference to your experience.
0: Yeah, as a person who loves uh, doing like online chats or whatever, uh, when I have an issue, when there's an actual issue that requires, when I'm frantic or whatever, everyone just put yourself in this situation. Something going on. Let's say your bank records have mm-hmm. not. Your banking identity has been. Your identity has yeah. been stolen. What do you want to do? Do you want to talk to a chatbot or do you want to talk to mm-hmm. a real person? I mean, if I I would assume ninety nine point nine percent of us want to talk to that real person. We don't want to go to Sorry. a foreign tree or all this stuff because we mm-hmm. we don't know this. A we don't again. I, I think, and it's a great analogy with healthcare. You don't know the severity of what just happened. You don't know what mm-hmm. to do next. You're just trying mm-hmm. to put a stopgap on everything. And the fastest mm-hmm. way to do that is just to get to a person and just have them close everything down Or and then mm-hmm. have them tell you the next steps. Like, mm-hmm. hey, you know, mm-hmm. what should I do? Am I canceling all my cards? Okay, when are they coming? This is the address they're coming to. Okay, we've put a lock on this. Did you make these purchases? Yes or no? Okay. Um, okay. And, I mean, and those are things that, actually that's very akin to like the healthcare process, right? Like, Hey, I got, I I just found out I have this, what's the severity of it? What do I do need to do Mm -hmm. next? Do I need to stop doing X, Mm -hmm. Y, and Z or should, you know, all this stuff. And, um, Mm -hmm. it's interesting that people are, people are forgetting their own experiences in crisis situations and saying that, Hey, it's going, it's, 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 it's good for them, but not for me type situation, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah exactly um yeah, there's a space for um something to kind of pop up and tell you what's going on but i want to phone someone directly and say please help i need to know what to do um yeah absolutely agreed
0: yeah awesome well um i can go on forever but you know let's end with this <laughs> last uh question all the you know you've had a pretty interesting journey um <laughs> From all the stuff that you know now, what would you have? What advice would you have given yourself as you were coming out as a fresh OT out of school?
1: Well, um, I I think I think it's always um, it's it's an old adage, but you my my mom used to say quite often you you've only failed if you haven't tried, um, and there's this constant sort of push to just keep trying try this out you you've heard about this you've heard about this ai thing you know dabble in it a little bit try it out see what it is um i i wish someone had told me to 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 try some more <laughs> um as as i go through it because there were there were various spaces that you know you could have seen things a bit differently could have different outcomes um but it's always try uh keep trying Keep pushing. Um, and it's going to be okay to have that in your mind. It's going to be okay. It's very important.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Um, and then, if anyone wants to get a hold of you guys or, or you personally, uh, what's the best method of doing that?
1: Yeah, e- emails usually the, the easiest to get to me. I'm, I'm quite active on, on LinkedIn and some of the other socials. Uh, I think LinkedIn is where we connect quite often. Um, but otherwise, my, my email address, I can your music, pass it out quickly
0: yeah yeah you can say it out loud and i'll have it in the show yeah. notes as well
1: cool and my, my email address is michael.awood at me.com um so yeah you can post it out there but otherwise pop me a message on linkedin happy to chat always happy to engage
0: awesome michael well thank you so much um like i said i was excited about this conversation i think it 100 delivered i could keep going and I have so many more questions but we'll have to stop it down we will, maybe we'll save it for the next episode
1: Perfect. Next episode, we'll get there. <laughs> All right.
0: Well, thanks again. And uh, you have a great rest of your day.
1: Thank you so much. You too. Thanks, Dane.